Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland, and we have a special episode today. Sitting not on the other side of the internet, but actually right next to me is uh, Timbers.com writer Richard Farley. So much is changing. I know. We're we're no longer blocks apart from each other. (laughs) A new era for the podcast. We're We're also recording podcasts out of order now, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We've already recorded this podcast once today, uh, but our uh, sound Never use Audacity. Audacity Uh, Yes, apparently. Yeah, that's what happened. Our recording uh, program didn't work. That's why we're trying to make as many jokes as possible right now, because we're trying to make the best of this situation. But I think it's going to be better the second time around. We have injury updates for both Timbers and Thorns. Uh, We have uh, national team announcements for Thorns. So uh, I think we actually, it's even better that we're going to do this the second time. Yes. So we originally recorded this at about 12.45 today, right after Thorne's practice here at Providence Park. We're going to be recording these shows from Providence Park from now on, so that's kind of a cool feature. Um, sometimes we'll be at the training center, but we'll be, be recording things on site. Anyways, Jamie and I walk upstairs from the pitch at Providence Park, and we get up here, we do our recording, but we haven't been to Giovanni Savaresi's press conference yet, so we have no updates there. And the women's national team roster had not been revealed yet. So in the second half of the show, you're going to see the, hear this little moment where we kind of check ourselves a little bit and make some jokes about the fact that, hey, we can actually talk about at least one surprise call-up for the Thorns. Should we just leave that there? Spoiler-free? Just leave it, yeah. Spoiler-free right now. (laughs) Um, But anyways, to get get going, um, obviously this is Richard's first full podcast uh, as the official co-host. Chris Reifer is going to be having to listen from the outside, probably tweeting at us uh, all his thoughts about how the podcast I like to think that Chris is yelling at his device that he's listening to on saying what he would have done instead of us. Yeah, but uh, for those of you who don't know Richard that well, I'm sure many of you do. Um, Obviously, he's covering the Timbers and Thorns for Timbers.com at the moment. He's also working for the Equalizer, but before this, he was at 442 uh, as an editor. He's done tons of coverage on women's soccer, men's soccer in the United States. I think he's one of the best writers out there right now, and so I'm really excited uh, to have Richard on the podcast now. Yeah, this is just going to be a mutual admiration society kind of carrying over from last week because as all of you know jamie is actually the best beat reporter in major league soccer right now but yeah i mean for people who don't know i've been in portland for almost a decade at this point used to work at nbc sports and fox sports and fusion for a little bit one of many mediates that got drawn into fusion and then drawn away from fusion and have worked for the guardian and espn and done what every soccer writer has seemingly had to do, scrape up money wherever you can, and now I am a happy member of the Timbers family, which seems to be a point of conversation in the yeah. thread at some town footy and logically on Twitter. How unbiased can Richard Farley be on this show? I don't know. How unbiased can I be, Jamie? <laughs> well, I, I think when Chris decided to um, step down, obviously I was disappointed and sad and um, I'm going to miss working with him. But I, I think immediately I, I thought of you to come on as a co-host. I, what I've seen obviously your work at 442 before this year um but also this year with what you've been able to produce at timbers.com i I think you've produced a ton of great content and have really honestly been critical of the team when when you needed to be and it hasn't felt like you've had to approach your reporting in this new job from a biased perspective so i I was really excited to get your voice on this podcast and I, i 
based on what we've seen so far in the last week, I, I don't see you holding back. <laughs> one of the upshots, one of the very few upshots of the Timbers getting off to the start that they did was that it immediately put a test to the credibility of my job, I think. And I think my job is going to have constant credibility tests. I'm not under any illusion that they're going to be solved immediately. But when your team loses its second game of the season, four to nothing on the road, you get to write something critical and you get to deal with the fact that everybody in the organization is going to read it and react to it. And some of those people are the players that put on the kit in the crest every other week or every week. So I am going to be critical, but I think one thing that I'm aware of is that you're always going to have a proximity bias. When you work with people, you naturally want to empathize with them. So that's why I hope you'll come in. That's why I hope the listeners come in. That's why I hope the readers come in and just kind of say, maybe you're getting too close to the situation and maybe it will actually make for some good podcasting too. I mean, I think that, and you know, there are a couple of other concerns that got brought up, how much this show is going to be like Talk Timbers, which I'm also on on Wednesdays and not to get too meta potty with this, we will actually go on to talk about games. But this one last thing is, one thing that I like about the opportunity to join the show is that it's not a radio show. It's a podcast, and that radio show doesn't have you. And you and I do very similar jobs, and I think it would be very interesting for people to listen to how you and I approach things from different perspectives, have different conclusions, and we'll have information that can obviously augment the show, but also augment each other's content. Yeah, I mean, I think we're both on the field every day watching practice, talking to Mark, talking to Gio, and I think that we do offer a different perspective than maybe you get from, from Jake and Ross, who, who have a little bit of a different role, you know, uh, being up in the booth calling the game. So, um, I'm excited for that. I'm also excited that we're hoping to have some great guests on oh, moving yes. forward. That's a big priority for us to, to get some analysts, get some players, get some coaches, talk to different people that we've, than we've talked to in the past. So I, I'm really excited that just us working together might open some opportunities to, to talk to some different interesting people and give the listeners uh, some new perspectives. Yeah, I mean, that's one place that we are going to actively try not to overlap with Talk Timbers. Everybody knows that Talk Timbers frequently has a prominent player, usually somebody from the coaching staff on the show every week, but there are a lot of other interesting stories throughout the Timbers, the Thorns, and T2 that we're going to be able to tap into by having this outlet, and having your perspective on that is going to bring a unique perspective to those stories. So I'm very excited about that. I'm also very excited about talking about the Rapids game this weekend, but one thing we forgot to do last time as we transitioned into the game is answer these two questions that we picked out at the beginning. Um, Maybe I'll let you ask the first one because I'm not so sure about where these kind of these kind of questions fit into the show. Yeah, uh, we got a question from Lord Byron asking. Uh, we know Jamie's stance, but we don't know yours. Uh, are burritos the best food or the bestest? And uh, for your background, uh, we we've had we once in a while have some food questions. I, I feel like we do food in Portland a little bit, um, <laughs> but I feel like people aren't a huge fan of my answer to this question, which is essentially that I'm not a burrito person. Oh. I, I, I do like quesadillas. I, I love mm-hmm. cheesy items with tortillas and stuff like that, but I'm not into the rice and the burritos and how filling they are. What about you? So I have two answers to this, both diametrically opposed to each other, and one of them diametrically opposed to you. I think burritos are the most effective food delivery system that mankind has ever come up with. <laughs> but you were more talking about the contents of a typical burrito, the type, the style of food that goes inside of a burrito. I think as an actual medium for consumption, it's brilliant. It's simple, brilliant in it's simplistically, sim, simplicity. It locks in all the f- flavor. It forces those flavors to interact with each other. I think it's great. Now, 
I think any reasonable person can admit what goes inside the burrito is very much open to personal preference. But I think burritos themselves are pretty ingenious. But it did remind me, this answer to this question, that you and I have worked with each other for three or four years now. We don't actually know each other that well. So uh, this is something that got cut from the previous uh, podcast that we did. Um, and we have to re- record this podcast now. But I'll just approach it like this. I am a very, very big fan, big fan of the 80s boy band New Edition. And Jamie, what do you know about New Edition? Nothing. <laughs> so I was going to come into this show and quiz Jamie and ask her who were the five members of New Edition. Trick question. There were actually six, um, only five members really at a time. I was going to ask her what her favorite New Edition songs were. What did they know? She know about New Edition. She knows nothing about New Edition because she's a youngin. So. For the next show, what I'm going to ask you to do, and I'll forward you links to these, I'm going to ask you to listen to (laughs) my three most important new edition songs. You're going to tell me what you think about them. I can already tell that you're not going to like it, but... I think the question is going to be, what did you learn about Richard Farley from having to listen to these three songs? I'm a little scared. We'll see. So the three songs are going to be um, Can You Stay on the Ring, Um, If It Isn't Love, which is the greatest New Jack Swing song of all time. And then their first big hit when they were all Jackson 5, Barely Teeny Bobbers, Candy Girl. All right. We'll see what I learned. The look of absolute (laughs) dread on Jamie's face right now is not priceless, but it would cost a lot of money. (laughs) Well, I think think we need to move on to the soccer now. Um, But that was quite a lot of introductory and I guess I'm going to learn a lot more about you. <laughs> you don't have to say it like that. Like at least fake it. You are now a broadcasting professional. At least pretend that you're interested in your co-host. No, I understand. Let's get to um, let's get to the game in Commerce City this weekend and I guess the best way to get to it is to review our predictions and I'm kind of scared about this because last week I kind of Shot some fear into you in being very harsh with my scores regarding the Timbers game, your prediction. But then I made up for it with the Thorns by being very generous. So I'm a little bit scared as to what (laughs) scores you're going to give me this week. Well, okay. So obviously we know the Timbers went to Colorado. They got their sixth straight win. 3-2 win over the Rapids. Uh, I predicted a 2-0 Timbers win with a Blanco goal and assist. He did get the assist, um, but no goal. And Richard predicted a Timbers won Rapids. Rapids zero uh, <laughs> score line with Adonella getting at least three saves. We, st- we didn't look it up this time yeah. either. <laughs> um, which is a very low probability side bet. Uh, right. So I think I got the score line a little bit more. I think, I think you got I the think I got a little game. bit yeah. more. Um, it played much more like a two-goal game. Oh, and Colorado yeah. didn't really generate that many good chances on goal. One was an own goal. The other one was a penalty. So I think 2 nothing was a lot closer than somebody would think by seeing it was 3-2. Yeah, so I, I think that I will give you got the results. So I'll give you 7.1 points. And uh, because I, I got it a little bit closer and, and I got the assist, I will give myself uh, 14.2 points. Nice. Well, congratulations to you for being so nice to you. <laughs> you were twice as nice to you as you were to me. Exactly twice as nice. Are you, were you a math major? No, I, I don't even think I did that on purpose. It's just what came to my brain. <laughs> I hope math majors do more complicated things than multiply numbers by two. So I finally looked. Jeff Attenella had five saves this weekend. Yeah. So. But just 
I just don't think you get a lot of credit for that one. I don't think so either, but whatever. Let's move on to the actual game. Timbers run their winning streak to six. Samuel Armenteros had a couple of goals. Uh, Diego Valeri had the, th- the other goal, was it? Okay. It's been so long ago at this point, I barely remember. We talked about the goals for Colorado, a Julio Cascante own goal, and then a Julio Cascante penalty that led to a 97th minute penalty kick conversion. But the Timbers are at six in a row. It's the second longest winning streak in MLS history ever since they ditched the, the tie-breaking shootout, which happened in 2000. Uh, if they win their next game, they will tie the longest streak in MLS history. How good were they? How good do you think they were in Colorado? I, I don't think of this winning streak. I don't think Colorado was their best performance. I, I think the attack took advantage uh, of some opportunities. Took they were able of to Danny get. Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> Bad day for Danny Wilson. <laughs> yeah, Armandero certainly took advantage of Danny Wilson. Um, I, I think the Timbers did a really good job of getting behind the back line on, on multiple occasions, creating chances and, and creating dangerous chances that were scorable goals. I, I mean, they scored three. They easily could have had yeah, four or five. Sam could have had four or five um, goals. I mean, in any game that a striker does well, you could say, oh, he could have had so many more goals. But there were two times yes, that Armenteros really had very, um, to evoke Chris Weiver, very high XG chances. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think in terms of the attack, I, I think, I mean, Colorado is not a good team, but I, I do think it was a good performance from the attack. I, I think the defense, uh, they, was a little more up and down. I think Cascante, I think we'll get to this a little bit more, but I think he follows up his initial performance here at Providence Park with, with a much rougher performance in Colorado. Uh, I think the Timbers gave the Rapids too many chances for the t- how good of a Rapids team they actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think you can't you don't. You can't look at that and say, "Oh, this is a bad side for the Timbers." I mean, they're at six wins for a reason, and I, I think that's because they keep finding ways to win. They keep finding ways to make tweaks and, and adjustments to their opponent, and they find ways to grind out results and have confidence. I, I mean, the confidence they're playing with right now, I, I think, is hugely important when you look at the results they've been able to get. So. Yeah, I think they've had better performances in the six-game stretch, but this was overall a solid performance from them, and I think it says a lot that they're now at the point where they've gotten to six wins. And I think that leads into our first question from David. Can the Timbers keep this up? And I think there are two answers to this. If you're looking at things in terms of bottom lines, pure results, no, they cannot keep this up. They are not going to go with a 100% record through the rest of the season. They're not going to even come close to it. They'll probably have a record that's commensurate with being a very good to one of the best MLS teams, which I think they will be by the end of the year if they're not already at that level. But over this six-game win streak, they have not played like a 6-0-0 team. They've gotten some good breaks. They've gotten some good matchups. They've played like a team that is very good, but they could play like this over their next six games and go 3-2-1. and one. So At some point, the whistles are going to go against them. Just some weird goals are going to happen. They're going to have a game where they get 10 shots on goal and the other keeper has a blinder and saves 10 of them. And they'll lose that game. But they will still be, in terms of the process, playing the same way. The logic of a 34-game season has already played out over the Timbers' first 11 games. It'll play out more over the next 23 games. Yeah, I think what we've seen is growth from the Timbers from the start of the season until now. And I think overall they've gotten better and better, obviously. Maybe the LAFC performances was better than the Colorado performance, but I think overall we've seen growth from them. And I think going forward when you're looking at is this winning streak going to stay alive? I think they have a huge opportunity. We'll get to it a little bit more, but a huge opportunity to keep that alive against a not-so-great LA Galaxy team this weekend. Not so great. Mm. We're already getting there. We're already going in on the Galaxy. I mean, we're going to have to at some point. Yeah. Okay. 
But I mean, after that, they faced the first. Uh, first team in the West in, in Kansas City then they go on the road and they face Atlanta and they go on the road to Seattle which is not an easy place to play and so I think the Timbers are going to be tested this month and how they do and what kind of performances they are able to put in I, I think we'll we'll kind of see um, where they're at as a team but I think everything we're seeing is that they're moving in the right direction and even if the win streak comes to an end I, I wouldn't necessarily look at that as them going backwards or anything because it's going to happen um, as long as they keep putting in these types of performances that keep finding ways to make tweaks to their opponent and um, keep improving this could be a team that we're talking about being a contender towards the end of the year and we could be talking about it as being maybe the best Timbers team of their MLS era they have at least that talent they have the experience of the success and the failures they had under Caleb Porter and obviously what we've talked about all year is they've reinforced that talent with depth that is really going to play itself out over the next month we're going to talk about some of that depth and some of the position battles that came out of the game Colorado, what the status of those are. There really are position battles at every level of the field. But before getting to that, when you started listing off those teams, I just realized how excited I am for this next month because there are going to be challenges. There's already a challenge with LAFC coming in here and not overlooking the opponent, not looking towards the Kansas City game, not worrying about the short turnaround to Open Cup, not looking forward to the Atlanta game because the Kansas City and Atlanta games, those are two MLS elite teams right now. It'd be very easy for Portland if they're trying to establish themselves as one of those elites to already be looking towards those and pass the Galaxy task. But as we found out the first week of the season, you should not look past the Galaxy. So I'm very excited for that because even if the Timbers lose both of those games, it's going to be so interesting to see how they respond because we know that they can be a good team, but can they be a good team after they're punched in the mouth? And if they don't end up being punched in the mouth in those games, then how good is this team then? Because at that point, they'll have a nine-game winning streak. But let's get to some of those position battles. Pretty much ever since this season started, people have been wondering about Armadi, Armenteros versus Fernando Adi. But Armenteros really put his best foot forward this weekend, and I think right now it's hard to say that there's a lot of controversy about the number nine position going into Saturday's game. Yeah, I think Armenteros is absolutely going to start Saturday, and I think what we've learned about Giovanni Savarasi is that he is a coach that's going to reward players based on performances in, in both training and in the games, and I think when we were talking last week whether he would risk making a change to the lineup when the Timbers are doing so well and bring Armenteros in, he showed that. He showed that by rewarding Armenteros for his performances by putting him in Colorado and then Armateros rewarded him back by getting those two goals. And It just ended up being a genius choice, right? Yeah. Like We were debating it. Oh, Adi's been doing all these good things and against Colorado's defense. I, I should have asked Giovanni Savarese today at the press conference, did he have an intuition that Colorado was going to play that man-marking style at the back like they did? Because if he did, all the logic for starting Fenedo Adi goes out the window because you know you're going to have Armateros one-on-one against a slower defender. Why didn't I ask him that? Am I not good at my job? <laughs> Have I ever been good at my job? A lot of questions going through my head now. But I, we're talking about slower defenders, Galaxy coming in here, not a good defensive team, slower defenders, people that are going to get undone by the cleverness of Armenteros if he plays like he can. I think this is going to be a big game for Armenteros this weekend. Yeah, I think I think it can be, and I think at this point it's his position to lose. Uh, I think as long as he keeps performing, he's going to be in that lineup. Audi has done well for the Timbers. He'll continue to play a role off the bench. We maybe will see a, the return of a 4-4-2 at some point. Oh, is, but that, is that breaking news? 
<laughs> Are you break, breaking news? Four four two coming to the Timbers? No. no, okay. I don't. I don't think we'll see it soon, but we might see that. I mean, Gio has been flexible and made changes when he's needed to throughout the season. Um, but at this point, uh, as they're going with one striker, it's got to be Armenteros, and until uh, the competition and the performances change that. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Your this your question led to that. Tim asked. Who starts at striker this week and why? Hopefully we answered that. The next question we got is about the position battle in defense. It's from Ben. Will Cascante or Tui Loma be able to mature enough to provide a lockdown mistake-free performance while Ridgewell is out? I don't know. I can't see the future in this. I kind of agree that Cascante and Tuiloma have put in generally good games. You don't see any obvious flaws that they're getting exploited for, except for individual mistakes that happen that keep them from having a complete 90 minutes. Now, based on that, yeah, you would say just eliminate those one or two mistakes. But I feel like we're in Thorns territory where for like <laughs> nine matches of the year, we were like, oh, it's a good defense, except for when it's not a good defense. With Regarding um, Bill Tuiloma and Julio Cascante, you just got to figure that experience um, will eventually lead to that. And unfortunately, it becomes a double-edged sword at that point you can't get better unless you put yourself in situations to make mistakes yeah i think that against lafc we saw cascante come in for liam ridgewell not expecting to come in the sixth minute and he put in an almost air-free performance i think there was a few moments we were looking at particularly on the vela goal saying maybe he could have done better but overall that was a tremendous performance from him obviously colorado was not as successful i think he gets unlucky on the own goal i mean alvis powell has to take responsibility for that uh, to some degree. And Edgar then I, Castillo can take some responsibility yeah. for that too. He looked good this weekend. <laughs> but then also, I mean, and then the, the penalty is not a, not something that Cascante should be giving up. Um, I do think what this performance does is creates more competition at that position. For right yeah. now, we know that Liam Ridgewell is going to be out this weekend. We don't get more injury updates, but we don't know how long at this point. Um, but with him out this weekend, I, I mean, because of Cascante's sort of up and down performance in the Colorado game, I'm not sure if we're going to see Tui Lomo or Cascante in there. I think that's a really real battle this week between the two to determine which one will be starting alongside Larry Smaviala. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think that's going to be settled on the training field over the next 72 hours. I think how the tape from his last two or three T2 appearances for Tui Loma is going to, have a fact, is going to factor into it. And I think uh, how Cascante, well, I'll put it like this, the, how the coaching staff diagnosed the errors that Julio made in terms of what they felt he should have done in that situation and how likely they think he is to respond to their instruction. All of that will dictate who we see this weekend. And it's just a bet I wouldn't make. I just don't know who is more likely to start there. Um, but this feeds into a question from Jared, also from Twitter. If if you guys want to know how to get questions in, you guys should be familiar with it by now. If you're new to the show, we always call for questions in the 24 hours leading up to the broadcast, broadcast, the recording. Uh, but from Jared, can slash should PTFC try to sell Liam this summer? So clearly they can. That's in the rules. But in your opinion, should they? Yeah, I, I just don't see that happening. I, I think that... Oh, no, 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 no. I don't see it happening either, but should they? <laughs> no, I don't think they should. Okay. And there, there's multiple reasons. I, I think, one, if the Timbers are thinking at this point that they are possible contenders. I think we've seen that when Liam Ridgewell is healthy on the field and bought in, he is a huge addition to the defense and was a yeah. huge reason why they suddenly went from being a bad defensive team earlier in the year to being a good defensive team in the yeah. stretch where he was playing. Well, now that Chris is gone, I'm not going to produce gifts of him. It's He's going to be criticism 
isn't free, right? <laughs> Chris puts out that gift and then everything just, explodes. Just because he's gone from the podcast doesn't mean he's gone from Twitter. Actually, so. he's probably going to be more active on yeah. Twitter now that he doesn't have to do this. But no, I, I completely agree with you. I think I asked Giovanni Savarese about uh, today about Zarek Valentin's leadership on the field, and you and I were there while he was talking about that at training last week. But it's very clear that in the absence of Liam, Zarek has to be that guy. But Liam is better at that. Liam, there's a reason his experience has led to the good defensive records when he's on the field and healthy. It's just a matter of how often he could be on the field and healthy. Yeah, and I think on top of that, even if the Timbers wanted to transfer him, I don't think they're going to get much return. I mean, ultimately, he is a injury-prone center back near the end of his career. I think that's the reason why we've often said this year that we don't see the Timbers re-signing him because there's you can't really predict the future and see how many games he's actually going to play uh, for his price range moving forward. So I, I think the Timbers in a way are stuck with him this season, but given the performances he has put in when he's healthy, I, I think that could be a real benefit for them as they try to contend. And any position in MLS on any team, you have to look at it. If this guy wasn't here, could we get a better option? And I, I just don't know, given the Timbers' other needs, the resources they have, the assets, and Liam's place in this team, not only on the field, but as part of this team's culture, I just don't see that as a place where you're going to get a huge upgrade at this point in time. Uh, it's just a matter of whether he can stay on the field. And I, I also personally think that based on the fact that he was dropped earlier this year, it took some time for him to get, to get back in. Based on how we saw him react when he came back in and the team started keeping clean sheets, I think he feels like he has something to prove. And I don't think he wants to prove it anywhere else. I think he wants to prove it here. Forever, however long Liam Ridgewell is still a timber, I think he wants that time to be remembered fondly for a good play on the field and not for being dropped by Giovanni Savarese. So let's before we go on to the next question, let's skip down to the midfield because the midfield also has some questions because David Guzman is gone. He hasn't been playing much this year, but Andy Polo, who was a regular starter, he's gone too. They're both in they're in Central and South America right now ahead of vaulting off to Russia, playing in the World Cup. They're going to be gone for six weeks, probably six weeks. I don't <laughs> think it's going to be eight weeks. I do hope to see a Peru-Costa Rica final. That would be the best final ever, <laughs> in my opinion. But as a result, there has to be some shakeups in midfield. I feel like there isn't much to talk about here because I think we pretty much know the three people who are most likely to start these games when they're healthy. Yeah, I, I think that at the beginning of the year going in, when we were predicting and talking about the World Cup, these absences looked a lot more concerning. But now you look at Paredes. I mean, Guzman was healthy uh, the last few weeks, and Paredes was still earning that spot. I think he's proved that he deserves to be on the field and ultimately has a bigger upside with his age and his development than Guzman. And so Chara and Paredes are going to be on the field as long as they're healthy. I, I think Polo, we, we've seen some decent performances from him, but he hasn't really contributed in the goals or assists that uh, they were talking about earlier in the season. I, I think that he hasn't really been used in that straight winger role that we expected. He's been used more in this um, this formation that Savaresi has rolled out more as it's a defensive like, it's midfielder. It's called the half Darlington. Yeah, <laughs> half Darlington. Um, but, but I think there's, I, because of that, I, I think it, even though we did see, a, we've seen Polo get better, and he probably had his best performance of the season against LAFC. Yeah. I, I think it is more of an easier switch um, with the position that he's been playing. I, I think we're going to see Flores come back into the lineup, and I think overall Flores has done well. So I don't think the Timbers are going to lose 
all that much um, from that absence as they would in a different spot on the field, obviously, if Blanco or Larry were gone. Yeah, it's so weird recording this podcast twice because you think of the clever things you said an hour ago. Actually, it's three hours, four hours ago when we recorded this, and you're like, oh, I can say this just like last time. It was so clever. But you also know that you're just repeating yourself. And what I said at that time was... Losing Polo is different than losing a Blanco or a Valeri or a Chara, who are really part of the identity and the style of this team. The other players on this team, even we're seeing a striker where we have, where we, where, the, where Portland has two very good options that you can swap them out and not really lose the core ethos of the team. Polo is not there yet. Polo has been played very well, but I think we've seen in certain circumstances, the New York City FC game, Flores has actually been preferred because of the different qualities that he brings. Giovanni Savarese clearly highly trusts Andres Flores, and based on the way Andres Flores has played, there's no reason for everybody who's watching the Timbers not to trust him, because while maybe he isn't the most dynamic player, he really hasn't made a mistake to this point, and given the way he plays, I think it's probably unlikely that he's going to make a glaring mistake anytime soon. The last position battle that we haven't talked about, um, well, it's not even a position battle. It's a question from Daryl. Um, Daryl asks, uh, what is the future for Valentin and Powell? And this is uh, where I can insert my stat that actually led to nothing before. But Alvis Powell has actually had to, be subbed, has had to be subbed off in five of his nine starts this year, which to me strikes me as weird because we know the team basically wants to use one of its subs as striker. To this point, it's generally used one of its sub, subs to bring Andres Flores on. And if Powell is going to continuously come off, if he's going to keep getting injured late in games, that basically means every one of the Timbers' substitutions is has to be accounted for before the first, uh, before the opening whistle. Not typically what you want to do. You typically want to be able to substitute a fullback off for an attacker late in the game uh, if you're chasing, or you want to use that last substitution to give the people who are pressing and trying to kill off the game substitute one of those players, substitute a Valeri off or a Blanco off as they're losing steam. I just think it's a little bit weird. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not something we've seen from him in past years. It's not like this has been a constant problem for him. I, I don't think it's ideal for the Timbers, and, and it's something that I think they're, even right now, looking at, we'll get to the injury updates in a moment, but I, I, I think it's something they don't want. Obviously, as they try to make their substitution patterns, they want a player in Powell's position to stay on. So so we'll have to see if this is something that continues, because it hasn't been an issue for him in, in past years. So um, it's probably, we'll have to see if it has to do with the injury he's suffering at this point or, or what's going on in terms of you know Valentin and Powell's future with the club I, I think that ultimately that that is a position the Timbers could look at even in the summer transfer window to maybe upgrade either of those positions I, I think Powell as we've talked about a lot delivers a lot when he's playing his best but he's also his inconsistency continues to be a problem and it doesn't help when he's getting subbed off uh, in more games than not I, I think Valentin has done a tremendous job for the Timbers a right footed left back but but I think he's made that position his own and done very well especially defensively that said I, I still don't think he brings the what the Timbers need in the attack or would want in the attack from their left back and I think that is a position obviously at some point we might see Vitas come back in and compete for that position um, but it's also a position the Timbers might want to look elsewhere in the long term even if Valentin remains an important leader and important player for them maybe not as a starter a long-term solution as a starter uh, so yeah I, I think if we're looking at positions for the summer transfer window right now that's one you have to point to and also in the offseason um, 
Um, I, I think the Timbers are doing fine with the outside backs they have. They, they've all, they're obviously on the six-game win streak, and you've seen some good things from Powell when he's playing well, and you've seen, I, I think, Derek Valentin's definitely proved himself, uh, but it is still a position where you could see upgrades. I think the one thing that's very exciting about this time that Zarek has got to play, I mean, he got to play for a good stretch at right back last year. Now he's playing left back. He seems to be the first choice at left back. It seems to be the first choice for the foreseeable future. The one thing that has been great to watch is just how much he has become a cornerstone part of the culture of this team in the locker room, in terms of leadership, in terms of being somebody that can speak both Spanish and English, somebody that has had two other MLS stops before this, somebody that has played in Europe before, brings a lot of different perspectives to the team. And when he interacts with his fellow teammates, you can see that interesting combination of maturity and just joy that comes from him. And no matter if he's going to be the starter long-term at left back, he's, he's really cemented his spot as being just a really beloved player within the team and the organization and the fan base. I mean, the fan base sees how much he works for this team. And uh, it's kind of interesting to see somebody that you would kind of call a role player becoming a favored player. And that's kind of exciting just on a non-tactical, non-performance level. Jamie, I'm going to get in the habit of asking you about injuries because you're the person who asks about the injuries in these press conferences and these scrums. So it's only right to give you the credit for that and allow you to relay the information. I want updates on five players. No, I want updates on six players. Liam Ridgewell. You actually heard something interesting today. Tell us. Yeah. Uh, Liam is, uh, it looks like, coming along faster than expected, which is a really good sign because I think we were talking about last week how uh, with the squad injury, we wouldn't be surprised to see him out for much longer uh, than expected just given his injury history. It looked like from uh, photos he posted that he was back out on the field today, at least doing uh, a little bit uh, of work on the field. Um, he's still not going to be in this game uh, Saturday. Giovanni Savaresi did not say an exact timeline on when he's going to be back, but it does sound positive that he's coming back quicker than expected. Okay. Uh, we saw Alvis Powell um, appear to pick up some kind of leg injury late in the game in Colorado. What's the status on him? Yeah, with Powell, Savarese said they're still evaluating that. He said it is a, something muscular going on, uh, but they're going to evaluate it in the next day or two and make a decision on whether he's available for this weekend. Uh, so I, I think that is a question mark right now. And going back to the things, be, the, the him being subbed off uh, a number of times this year, it, I am interested to see what comes of this and whether it, there is something else going on that um, the Timbers maybe weren't aware of. It's going to be interesting because in the first game of the year, Alvis Powell eventually had to be pulled against the Galaxy because of Emmanuel Boateng. And if he doesn't start, you would have to assume that Zarek Valentin goes to the right and Marco Farfan comes in on the left because Vitas still has not appeared in more than one game for the first team this year. He is appearing for T2. What did Savarese say about the well, last year's first choice left back. Yeah, I mean, Gio said that they're still evaluating Vitas to see if he's at 100%, 100% ready to compete for the first team. Clearly, he's capable of being on the field. He said he's in full training. Uh, he's obviously getting minutes for T2, but for whatever reason, Savaresi doesn't believe he's at the point in his return to full health to be ready to compete for the first team. Now, not to make this into a spoiler, but we can lump these next two together. Samuel Armenteros came off with uh, what looked like a cramp that might have been something more. And then Julio Cascante also appeared injured at the end of the Colorado game. What's up with them? Yeah, Savaresi said they're fine. So that's uh, very exciting news because uh, I think there was some worry coming in uh, after that game. Okay, the one person that uh, we, I, when I said five, no six, the sixth is Jake Leeson wasn't in the 18. 
What's up with Jake? What's up with Jake? Jake? I don't think uh, we have an answer on that one, actually. Um, I, I guess Jake must have slipped our mind as of someone who hadn't been getting on the field very much. Um, but that's one we're going to have to keep updated on. Obviously, he wasn't in the 18. It didn't sound serious, um, but we'll have to see uh, if Mick and Todd or, uh, or if Gleason is in the 18 this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm curious to see if Kendall, for some reason, Kendall McIntosh gets playing time because the guy as a goalkeeper is a very, I mean, he's by far the most athletic goalkeeper that we have. Um, and to see him in practice every day, you get to see that athleticism come out. I would love to see what that athleticism does in an MLS game. T2 fans have seen it quite often in uh, USL games, and they know how important he's been to that team's upward trajectory. Maybe something we can talk about for a couple minutes later. Um, and then a couple in other injury updates. We talked about Roy Miller last week. It's the same thing he's it's very encouraging to see how hard he's working out there um even doing some things with the ball now uh, with the team just not really taking full contact and then um people who follow t2 might know that jeremy abobasi was dealing with a quad issue a couple weeks ago he's last week he was back in full training with the team he's actually played for t2 since came on as a substitute against uh, the monarchs and looked fully healthy so for the people who want deep dives on timbers injuries which are probably people that subscribe to soccer made in portland there is a very very deep dive on the injury situation um if you want to roll into the galaxy preview you already started previewing them a little bit <laughs> saying that they were one of the worst teams in make oh you didn't say that I did not say you, they were one you of just worst. you just said they weren't great a drop of skepticism <laughs> um yeah so the timbers obviously will take on host the galaxy this weekend uh, on saturday at providence park that game will kick off at 2 p.m uh looking back i mean the timbers first game of the season was against the galaxy in la they lost two to one but you have to look at the timbers as a different team now i, I mean I mean, you look at those first two games of the season uh, against the Galaxy and then against New York. Uh, those were the Timbers' worst two games of the year. And I, I think this team has gotten better ever since. I, I think the Galaxy have not really gone in that direction. I, I think they're not expected to be a team that goes very far this year. So I, I think this is an opportunity um, for the Timbers to get a win. The Galaxy also will be playing on short rest after playing Wednesday and will be missing players, uh, the DeSantis brothers, uh, among them to the World Cup. Um, but they do still have Zlatan Ibrahimovic if he plays. If he plays. You never know with these older European guys how much fear they'll have of this dangerous – I'm not even going to joke around about that because the turf here isn't dangerous. <laughs> but the reputation for every turf surface is that it's so terrible. And as we know from the fact that David Beckham and Thierry Henry and David Villa have played here, it's fine. But maybe we can convince Zlatan Ibrahimovic that's not fine. No, I don't want to say that. I want him to play. I yeah. think everybody's excited for him to play. The Galaxy – a couple things that are interesting just about them before going into player by players. We're not going to do that, but before mentioning individual players, they play Dallas midweek. Dallas has only allowed 11 goals in 11 games this season. And that's about a defensive rate that the Timbers have been able to keep up during their last four or five games. Um, like Dallas, the Timbers are just very hard to break down and you mostly have to try to get their individual players to make mistakes. So if we see that the galaxy are capable of actually stretching that Dallas defense and breaking them down in a more systemic way, rather than just hoping for mistakes, that might augur well for Galaxy fans ahead of Saturday's game. I can't believe I said the word augur in common conversation. But um, you mentioned that there weren't a lot of expectations of the Galaxy this year, and you look at the standings, I think they're right about where we would have predicted at the beginning of the year. They're fighting for the last playoff spot at this point. Their goal difference is a little below even, and 
overall, not anything to be super impressed by or think that they're the worst team. It's just not a typical Galaxy team because we're used to seeing them at the top of the standings, and they're not going to be there this year unless something really happens. The interesting thing for me is just how much these teams have changed since the first meeting of the season. Timbers don't play the same way. They've incorporated some different players. Obviously, with the injury situations, some of these players will never face the Galaxy before when they start on Saturday. And then the Galaxy having incorporated a major player who's required them to change formations and find a way to get Ibrahimovic working together with Kamara, their northern European connection there. And this weekend, they're going to be without a major piece in Jonathan Dos Santos, somebody that in the middle of midfield played very well in the first game of the season and somebody that could protect the defense and keep Samuel Armenteros getting the service that he would need. And I just think a lot of things match up really well this weekend for the Timbers. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think this is a, a huge opportunity uh, for the Timbers. I, I mean, just alone with the, the absences and L.A. playing midweek. I, I mean, this is going to be a, was always going to be a very tough game for L.A. based on the schedule. But with the way the two teams have been playing, I, I think this is going to be a disappointment. Even though the Timbers are on, on six wins and we know it has to come to the end sometime, it's going to be a disappointment this weekend if they can't find a way to win. Absolutely. Should we go to some questions now? Yeah. Yeah, you and I are getting really serious here. Let's lighten this up a little bit. Um, I'll do the first one. From Tom, seems like Geo is using T2 much differently than Porter. True? Question mark. If so, why and how is it making an impact on the club as a whole? Now, I definitely know the answer to this and I will give it, but I want to know from your perspective, from somebody who is out outside the organization, does it seem like Coach Savarese has a different philosophy regarding T2 than Coach Porter did? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest change that we've seen is that there's just so many more first-team players that are getting opportunities with T2 this year. I don't know how much it comes down to the philosophy. I think there certainly is a different philosophy, but I also think that Caleb had to deal with so many injuries over the last two years that he wasn't able to use T2 effectively, and we saw how bad T2 was last year. I I mean, the Timbers were requiring some of the players to the mid end of their roster to be involved with the first team being the 18, and they couldn't really send them down to T2. So Avrasi has done a really good job to put the players, that talented players that just aren't getting into the 18, give them opportunities with T2, use it as a place to rehab players when needed, and really develop these players at that, that level. I mean, we're seeing what Eric Williamson is doing at the T2 level. I think... That performance is earning him potentially a chance to get MLS minutes later this year, maybe even in the U.S. Open Cup game coming up. And I, I think overall we, we see how much better T2 is doing as a program. So I, I think we've seen a change. I think it, it's been much more effective as a development tool this year. Um, and much more effectively used by the first team to, to get some of the players that they know they want to develop but aren't going to get minutes or, or get in the 18 opportunities at the level. I think the most striking thing for somebody who watched T2 last year that maybe because of the results last year didn't decided not to follow as closely this year are players like Harold Hansen, Terrell Lowe, Lamar Batista, Augustine Williams, who were regulars for the team last year, are having to fight for minutes this year. They're not starters this year. Um, Augustine Williams has played very well. We mentioned that on last week's show, but so is Foster Langsdorf. Uh, and Foster Langsdorf is getting those minutes. It just shows you how deep the first team is. And because of that depth, Giovanni Savarese has gotten to use T2 as an active development and rehabilitation ground. I do think there is a pronounced difference philosophically between how he approaches that and how Caleb Porter approaches that. Maybe part of that is because of depth that 
Geo can afford to take some risks, expose those players to the USL environment, and if they get hurt there, fine, we have enough depth to deal with it. Maybe Caleb didn't have that depth before. But I also think that with so many home games that we've had recently for T2, that that becomes a place where instead of having players do extra work down at the training center, they can play the USL game that's happening on Tuesday or Wednesday, get their minutes, maybe even show something to get back in the picture for the 18 for the game that's going to be happening on the weekend. I think it's very interesting, and I also think it's just a a product of an organization just learning how to use this new resource. It's not like T2 has been here for that long, and it takes some trial and error to figure things out, and I think everybody would concede last year was an error. (laughs) Now, there's trial, and over the last week, we saw T2 beat the Galaxy's USL team 7-3. A little bit of a deceiving scoreline, but seven goals. Holy cow. And then they beat the best team in the West on Saturday, 1-0. Dyron Espriug had the goal in that game, so that shows you the quality of player that's playing down there. And the Monarchs had given T2 a butt whipping earlier in this year. So to see that team redeem itself, I think that's a testament to the job Cameron Knowles is doing. And that's another interesting thing to watch a former Timber in his first head coaching experience. But I feel like we've talked about T2 for a lot now, but there's a lot to talk about with T2 and hopefully we'll get some other people on the show to talk about it. Um, From Matt, how will Savarese manage players for LA on the second on Saturday and San Jose in the open cup on the following Wednesday, the sixth? I I think you have to look at those games and then then you have to kind of add in, I think the Kansas city game is the one that comes after that. I mean, it's a tight stretch of games in a short period of time, but I think, that it's not going to be that difficult to manage because I expect Savaresi to really rotate the roster for that midweek game. And I mean, when we're talking about all these players getting playing time at T2 and doing well and showing well, I think this is going to be their opportunity to, to kind of play in a first team game and show what, show what they're made of, show if what they deserve and potentially um, how they can perform at that level. I mean, I think it's likely San Jose will rotate their roster as well. I, I think we've seen that in us open cup from many teams throughout MLS in recent years. But I think the approach that Savaresi is going to take is to have a very different looking team in that midweek game. So it's not going to feel so much like a compacted schedule as an opportunity to get different players minutes. It's going to be a great test of the depth that we've been talking about. But also, I think in the past, Merritt Paulson has made it clear um, through his public statements where U.S. Cup falls in the priority list. And it falls behind MLS play and it falls behind Champions League play when the Timbers are there. And a lot of that maybe has to do with the fact that there's this creepy inevitability about Open Cup that eventually the Timbers are going to have to go to Starfire and they're going to have to play that game every year and they avoided that draw in this round of US Open Cup, but it's still a possibility that that trip's going to have to happen. And when you see that happen year after year, it kind of jades your perception of the competition a little bit. Now, if the Timbers end up in the quarterfinals or the semifinals, I'm sure that'll change and you start to feel that trophy in your hands a little bit. But right now, it's a great test for the depth. And again, it's a midweek game at home. It gives those players that didn't get any time on that Saturday chance to get their fitness in and make a case to be included in the team that'll face Kansas City in the next MLS game. So I don't think there really is much question here on how it's going to be approached. It'll be interesting, though, to see if that second layer of first tier talent, first tier talent, second layer of first team talent, I guess it's first tier talent, too, if they can actually keep the Timbers alive in the competition. Jamie, it's going to be our favorite time of the show because we get to say our friend's name again. <laughs> it's time for the Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take Interlude. I added the word interlude here because <laughs> I think it sounds cool. Um, everybody knows what this is about, so I'm just going to dive into it. I get the feeling this isn't a really hot take, though, so I'll spice it up a little bit. I think this year on the NWSL side, the media is going to find an excuse to vote Sinclair MVP. Now, 
the excuse might be she's the most valuable player in the league, and that'll be convenient. But typically, as as you noted on our previous version of this show, this award typically just goes to the player that has the most goals. Christine Sinclair has the most goals in the league right now. I don't know if she's been the best player in the league, but I can definitely think of three or four other players that I would include in the MVP conversation. I think former Tim, former Thorne McCall Zerboni has been great for the Courage this year, and people who come out to the game on Wednesday will get to see her play. But she has two goals, and she's not. she might not score more than two goals this year, so she's not going to get into that conversation probably. I think Christine Sinclair could very well be the third or fourth best player in the NWSL this year. And because she'll have a lot of goals and because she's Christine Sinclair, she'll get kind of a lifetime achievement nod and the media will give her the MVP. I, I think I do disagree a little bit on this. I, I really think that these awards, and I think it's unfair, but I think these awards generally go to the leading goal scorer. I, I think media and fan voting often too. Uh, of course, fans vote for their own players off, uh, often as well. But I, I think we see a lot in these media ballots throughout MLS, NWSL, other leagues, it's often the the player getting picked is the easy one. The, the player who's on the top of the, the, the statistics based on goals or, or whatever the category is in, in that sport. So I think, yes, right now, if, if the season ended today, I, I think it's very likely Christine Sinclair and her six goals would uh, win the MVP award uh, by the NWSL media. But I, I think ultimately if somebody else starts scoring goals, I, I think – Whoever gets the golden boots probably going to be in the MVP, and I, I think that's what we've seen from the NWSL in the past years. Um, if Christine Sinclair ends up playing as many minutes as she did last year, based on her rate of goals and assists this year, she would end up with 15 goals and eight assists, which is MVP level production in the NWSL. It's kind of MVP, not quite MVP level production in, in MLS. They play 10 more games in MLS, but you know that if you were an attacking midfielder and you produce those that many goals and that many assists, you're at least a first 11 candidate. So she's having a good statistical season, even though when you watch her play, she's the same old Christine Sinclair. <laughs> Jamie, give me your hot take and please, please make it hotter than mine. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if I can do that. Um, I, I think as, as everyone saw today, uh, MLS awarded FC Cincinnati Natty, an expansion uh, team, and so that kind of ends the conversation of um, whether Sacramento is going to get an expansion team at this moment. They still have a chance to get one of the final two expansion teams, but it, but it seems like MLS just wants to keep overlooking Sacramento, and, and I think I, I think that's really unfortunate because I, I think ultimately if MLS uh, gives away the final two expansion spots to other locations, I, I think they, it'll be a real loss uh, to not uh, bring the Sacramento Republic into the league. I I think what you've seen from them with their fan support, they've been one of the most well-supported teams in the USL over the last few years. I think their readiness to build a stadium, to have a location and ready basically to break ground. I think MLS is really overlooking a potentially great franchise, a team that I think would come into the league and immediately have potentially this similar support to what we see here in Portland. Maybe not the same atmosphere, Ooh. but I think that in terms of numbers, I think this would be one of the oh. better supported teams in the league from the get-go. Almost and, got hot take you there. Uh, they Again, would be... <laughs> I, love, I love how close you get to that hot take and I love every time I say the same thing. Trying to make the Sacramento-Portland comparison would be a scorching take. <laughs> well, I don't know if any team in the league can really meet the atmosphere 
sphere. Do you think Chris Reifer would like you holding back on this one? You have this <laughs> opening to jump through. Go for it. Say no, Sacramento not... is the Portland of of California, which would be a gross mischaracterization of, of Sacramento. <laughs> but say it anyway. I mean, I, I think they could be the most well-supported team in California if you want to go there. I'm not. I don't really think that uh, the Galaxy. I mean, I guess LAFC. Yeah. I, I am. I'm being a little unfair to LAFC because I'm not sure um, where Sacramento would compare to that. But I don't think the Galaxy or the Earthquakes are uh, too much competition in that realm. But but I think that ultimately this is a, a team that would be benefit to um, MLS. Would would be uh, would draw very very well and be an example example franchise that MLS could point to. And, and I, I think Major League Soccer is overlooking them, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, the timing seems weird for Sacramento because over the last five or six years they have established themselves as one of the leading performers at whatever league that they have been in as far as attendance but also on the field they've generally been pretty good too the the weird thing is that it almost just sets a bar that makes it easy for other teams to other teams other cities other groups to eclipse them because you kind of know if you can leap over where Sacramento is you're probably going to get in front of them in the race so Cincinnati has kind of done that and then maybe Nashville has a better uh, ownership group, uh, more stable, more stability in yeah, that the regard. The investors are certainly um, the thing that's kept MLS from uh, ultimately awarding. Yeah, it's, I mean, team. it's almost as if Sacramento has made themselves into a target. Like you know, they're the four-minute mile, and if you can eclipse the four-minute <laughs> mile, you're going to beat them in this race. And Sacramento, to a certain extent, can't go faster. I mean, maybe they can solve some of their off-field problems and get to 350, but by then, maybe the pace will be down to 345. So they're in a tough position. It's almost as if they peaked too soon in this race. Maybe they're uh, not to foreshadow this show, but maybe they're the North Carolina courage of this, and they're peaking really. They peaked really early, and the rest of the can, can we'll catch up. We'll see about that. Yeah, we'll see about that. Um, and speaking of seeing about that, why don't we go ahead and go to the second part of the show that we re- recorded first? <laughs> so I, I guess now moving on to Thorns. Um, Obviously, they're coming off a big win against the Utah Royals. 2-0 uh, victory here at Providence Park on Friday. Um, second game in a row that the Thorns have been able to win and get a clean sheet. Uh, I think our predictions, if we want to start there, were pretty good overall. Uh, <laughs> maybe one of ours was a little bit better than the other. Oh, you don't say. Uh, yeah, maybe one. Um, but, you know, we, we were both uh, kind of predicted the result, at least. Uh, I predicted a Thorns won, uh, Thorns won nothing win over the Royals with a Cerno Gorsovic goal. Uh, obviously, the result's right. Scoreline's not really there, and I didn't get the side bet. You predicted a Thorns 2, Royals 0. What was the final score of the uh, game? Yeah, it so- sounds pretty familiar. <laughs> mm. uh, with a Heath goal and an assist, mm. and Tobin Heath did, in fact, get an assist. Mm. Uh, not a goal there, but... Mm. Um, yeah, it's a <laughs> it's a pretty good prediction overall for your first week uh, on the job, Richard. Uh, so I uh, give you credit for that. Uh, I'll head out the points. Mm. I'm going to give myself a, kind of similar to what I gave you for the timber side. I think that's in line. So I'm going to give myself 7.1 points, and I, I think that's I'm going to give you uh, 19.1 points. 19.1 points. Yeah. Whoa. What's the record for points? Oh, way, way high. Really? Infinity? Infinity? <laughs> what was Infinity? I might have been, I honestly don't remember, but I'm sure it had to do with the defender scoring and uh, on the money. Okay. Um, with the results as well. Okay. Um, but we, we have ranges. We so, Sometimes we're feeling really generous in our, our 
our points have been like in the 50s and 60s and oftentimes recently we're a lot closer down to the the <laughs> teens and 20s so um that's where I'm going to stick now. But there, there's still you could still get infinity points someday. You just got to get. I'm going to start to get more level. daring with these predictions. Oh, you got to get very daring if you want to want that. Uh, okay. Okay. So. <laughs> We're going to see some ridiculous predictions in the future. I've already written down my predictions for this week, so I don't feel right changing them. But yeah. next week, I'm not <laughs> taking this segment seriously at all. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, if anyone told you this is supposed to be serious, I mean, no. <laughs> my predictions, I generally do try to stick with a little bit seriousness, but the side bets are always kind of fun to see where they go. <laughs> yep. Uh, but the actual game, yes. uh, we, it went pretty much as I think you and I would have predicted based on the scores and everything. Uh, second half, not quite as active as the first talking to Christine Sinclair after the game. She admitted that the team let the foot off the pedal a little bit after going into nothing at halftime. Uh, I thought it was a very interesting game. Uh, let's start from the back going forward uh, because it's two clean sheets in a row something that the Thorns hadn't been able to do all year, one clean sheet before then, and happens to coincide with the return of Emily Mangus. Yeah, I, I think that that can't be overlooked. I, I mean, I, I think it was the first eight games of the season. Now Emily Mangus plays 45 minutes in those first eight games. Um, but uh, first eight games of the season, they conceded 12 goals, and, and they haven't conceded any in the last two with Emily playing uh, 90, starting and playing 90 minutes in both those outings. I, I think when you look at Emily Mangus, she just is has been one of just overlooked within within the NWSL. I mean, she deserves a lot more credit than she gets. She's really this unsung hero of this team and within this league. Um, she just brings so much consistency to the field when, when you look at how she plays. She's even since that first year as a rookie with the Thorns, she's been a steady defender and she's just gotten better and better over time, both with her leadership and with her consistency on the field. I, I think when we talk about other players, we talk about the errors this season that the Thorns have had, some of these mistakes. I can't really imagine Menga's making the types of mistakes that the Thorns have made to lead to goals. Uh, at that same point, I, I can and I've seen, I can imagine Emily Sonnet uh, making some of those same errors because she does have lapses in judgment. There are moments where we've seen her make some big errors in key moments. Uh, that's not to say that Emily Sonnet's not a talented defender because she is. She's one of the better defenders in this league. But I think what Emily Mengus brings is that consistency, that error-free performance almost every single match. And when you look at not only her ability in moments to, to do a good job defending, but also her ability to cover the other players in the back line when they make a mistake. I, I mean, you'll see her running back into the box, making a slide to, to stop a potential player shot from a, an opponent because another player might not have had the best moment here or there. So that consistency, that leadership, that ability to cover even for our teammates, I, I mean, we really should be talking about Emily Mengas more than we have been. Oof. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that. Um, I just think that her and Sonnet complement each other so well. Sonnet is the high upside, occasional mistake defender that can be at her best because she has the safety net of Menges, but then Menges gets to, the res- not the respect, but she gets to be that safety net, which is probably her best role. You don't want her to be the person that's going to have to go out and be a playmaker from the back, um, going to have to jump into midfield and do the dynamic things that Emily Sonnet does. They complement each other spectacularly. For my money, I think that Emily Menges over the last two years in the NWSL has been the league's second best defender behind Becky Sauerbrunn. Um, if you factor in the time that Becky Sauerbrunn has missed, missed with national team duty, she's probably been the most valuable defender in the league. That she isn't recognized as such is a small crime as far as, you know, 
saying things are hyperbolic, hyperbolically crimes are concerned, but it would be a felony in some imaginary states to not recognize <laughs> Emily Mengez more. But the team is obviously performing a lot better with her. We've seen dramatic moments in these two games where her presence has made contributions that other people wouldn't. Um, so just some love for Emily Mengez, I guess, uh, that, some well-deserved love. I think other places I would like to give some love here, the Christine Sinclair-Tobin Heath combination. This is a combination that because of Tobin Heath's injury issues, we haven't gotten to see very much um, since 2016. I just thought that the chemistry that they had in the first half, the speed with which they were moving the ball, the lack of passes they needed to make because they knew where the other person was going to go. There was like no wasted effort. I thought it was great. Uh, I thought the way that Anna Cernogorsevich cleared space for them, allowed them to be at their best. It just really was a pleasure to see them. Uh, I spent most of the game on the field watching them. I want to ask, did it look as good from upstairs where you were in the press box as it did down on the field? I think what was exciting about this game is just seeing Sinclair and also Lindsay Haround. I want to I want to give her credit here as well, getting more involved in the attack and Heath contributing as well. I, I think that earlier in the season when, when we looked at the Thorns having success in the attack, it was because Sinclair and Haran were getting on the ball in good spots and getting opportunities to provide assists and goals. And when you look at Tobin Heath, what she provides, I, I mean, go back to 2016 when she was healthy, she led the NWSL in assists and it was wasn't even close and so we want to keep seeing um, as this team gets better and better and hopefully their attack continues to improve we want to see Tobin Heath providing those assists finding Sinclair but also finding Haran and, and that connection continuing to get better I, I think that Heath is not nearly at her best yet I, I think this has been a long recovery period and she will only continue to get better but we are seeing flashes of what Tobin Heath can do and what how important she can be to the team when she develops that chemistry with players like Sinclair and Lindsay Rand, chemistry that she's had in the past, but I, I think has to kind of be built up once again now that they now that she's coming back and is fully healthy. And so I, I think when you look at kind of the play between Heath and Sinclair and uh, just the performance of getting her on the ball a little bit more. You look um, at the assist that Ming Klingberg provides there. Um, there's a lot to be excited about with this attack right now and to, to, to assume that they're capable of getting only better and better. Yeah, I like that you alluded to Megan Klingenberg. Her assist drew an error from Abby Smith probably the crucial part of Lindsay Horan's goal. And, of course, she cleared that ball off the line in the first half to keep it 2-0 going into halftime. I almost said nil. Not that there's anything wrong with saying nil. I just personally don't want to do it. <laughs> I almost said 2-0 there. So, overall, we see a lot of pieces coming together for them. Um, yeah, I think that... Yeah, I think... We have back-to-back wins um, now, back-to-back clean sheets. And one thing that you talked to Mark and the players about today, the idea of the Thorns turning a corner. And I thought it was interesting that he kind of challenged the premise a little bit and said that there wasn't a corner to turn. But I still thought it was a, a valid way to look at the progress that Thorns have made over the last month. 
Yeah, I, I think you have to look at this as turning a corner. I, I think Mark's point is that he hasn't felt like the performance has been that bad. I, I think what's happened is that they've made big mistakes, especially on defense in big moments, and they've been punished for it at, at a, probably a higher rate than you would necessarily see in any given year. Um, and so I, I think Mark you know, is saying that he hasn't been disappointed with these performances, but it just hasn't led to the results. But at the same time, uh, as I said, you know, they conceded a lot more goals. They were making a lot more defensive errors uh, in the first eight games of the season than we've seen these last two weeks. And I think that's a turning point. I, I think you look at that game at Washington, they go there, they get the win. I think that gives them a lot of confidence to then come back and get the results against Utah and get a decisive 2 nothing win. I, I think that confidence uh, adds to that and, and it's something that's only going to help them move forward, moving forward. Uh, so for me, yeah, this is, this is a turning point and could be a big step for the Thorns as they hope to get things back on track and move up the standings because like, this team still has high expectations for this year and those aren't out of reach, uh, even though they've had sort of this lackluster start. Um, if this can really be the turning point that it seems, if they can build off this moving forward um, into this next game Wednesday and into the coming weeks, um, I think this is the point in the season we'd be looking back and saying turning point at the end of the year. Yeah, and Wednesday, the context of that is important. North Carolina coming into Providence Park for a Wednesday night game. Uh, I can tell you from talking to the team directly after the game, as good as the result was against Utah, as much as they had taken another step forward in their play, the context of that win wasn't, hey, this was a good win for us. The context was, this is a good stepping stone to this game four days from now that we're already thinking about. And that kind of summarizes what the rivalry or the competition between the Thorns and the Courage have become, although we should put that off for a little bit. I, I have to mention this because um, we're going to talk about injuries. We're going to talk about international call-ups. And when you and I originally did this show... 15 minutes ago, we did not know what the international columns were going to be. And in that time, the email from U.S. Soccer came. So we actually know which thorns have gotten called up to the U.S. Women's National Team. It doesn't affect this game on Wednesday. Uh, but for the Courage and all the other teams in the league, it does affect the weekend games. The thorns are off this weekend. But based on that email, we know that Tobin Heath got called in. Lindsey Huran got called in. No surprises there. Some other surprises, though, from the thorns getting called up? Yeah, Mitch Purse is going to be uh, representing going into national team camp. Um, obviously, Christine Sinclair for Canada as well, but I, I almost think they should just send out a release for that when uh, she doesn't get called in. Right, because, right, right. Um, that's, an, that's expected, but yeah. Um, Mitch Purse. Yeah, you see, I, I think that you look at the performance she's had this year, and it's not... Uh, it's not shocking. I, I think she's come in for the thorns and moved into more of a wingback position um, in the majority of the games, a position that uh, people kind of saw her as being her best area, but not necessarily one she had played quite as consistently. And I think she's been very important. She's been very active on the field for the thorns to the point that when Ellie Carpenter came in, the, there wasn't Mark Parsons was looking at where he could play Carpenter, not looking on how he can move mid purse off the field. Right. Uh, so, um, it's nice to see NWSL performances being rewarded. I think I still have questions sometimes about the players who aren't necessarily rewarded, although at this moment, French uh, is out injured, so I can't right. really complain about call-ups related to that. But um, Well, it is interesting to mention her because two goalkeepers that we didn't necessarily expect to get called in, or two goalkeepers that aren't part of the regular goalkeeper selection, are part of 
Jill Ellis' team this time. She called in Alyssa Nair. She called in Ashlyn Harris. We're used to seeing those names. Casey Murphy got called in. I don't think she's been called in in a number of years, certainly not since she left Rutgers. She's been playing in France at Montpellier, was recently named the best goalkeeper in that league for this year. She got called in. And then somebody that we saw on Friday, Abby Smith, has also been called in too. Can't help but think that if AD France was healthy, she would have gotten yeah. one of those two spots. Yeah. You got to think that. But but in the future, maybe this puts her, even though she's out right now, back in the race to get national team time. If this is a signal that the national team goalkeeper pool is more open than it's been in the past, that's good news for AD French, even if she's not there right now. Yeah. Um, I, like you mentioned, I, that's not going to impact the game Wednesday, and the Thorns aren't playing through the international break, so this shouldn't be an impact for them uh, in their upcoming games. What will be an impact on, on Wednesday night is the injuries. We got a little bit of an update from Mark Parsons on that today. Uh, as mentioned, um, Emily Sonnet is out with an injury. Uh, A.D. Franch is still out with an injury. Uh, Haley Rosso is out as well. Um, and, and Bella Geis, who, who weirdly was not on today's injury report, but is still injured. Uh, Mark Parsons confirmed is also out for that game. Uh, and not really any surprises there. Uh, no. We didn't expect Sonnet to be back in time yet. I think the interesting news we did get from Mark is that all four of those players could be competing for spots when we come back from the international break. Uh, we'll see how those timelines adjust. Maybe not all four of them are back on that game coming back, but it sounds like there's that kind of progress is happening, and we could be seeing this Thorns team getting to full strength pretty soon. Which is scary for not only the league, but it's a little bit scary for us, too, because we've kind of got our minds around what the Thorns are right now, and when those players come back, it could be a not drastically different team, but a meaningfully different team. And I think if you break out your magnifying glass and really look between the lines of what Mark said today, uh, you'll notice that Rosso was thrown in with that group of players that could be ready after the international break, which if you just use your rules of inference, probably notes that she's not no longer just training by herself or trying to get her knee uh, back in shape on bikes. She's actually doing stuff on the field at this point. So she is getting back to being the Haley Rosso that people remember from last year, which will obviously be a big help for the team to have that option. Um, but let's go ahead and transition and talk about uh, what we're going to see on Wednesday, today for some people, tomorrow for us, in the past for some people, hopefully, <laughs> if they're listening to this, because it is a big game. Uh, it is a game that the Thorns are very much looking forward to. The Thorns lost one to nothing to open the year in North Carolina. They beat North Carolina in the title game last year, and the last time these two teams played, it was one to nothing. Uh, played here at Providence Park, it was one to nothing in favor of the Thorns. So, of course, we're all going to pick one to nothing games. Let's <laughs> let's wait on that. Let's wait on that. Um, North Carolina. Best team in the league so far, top of the table by nine points. How big a win would this be if the Thorns got it? It would be huge. I, I mean, they, North Carolina hasn't lost a game. They're the only team in the league that hasn't lost a game this year. And like you said, they're far and away. They, they basically have that first place seed locked up at this point, unless something yeah. drastically changes throughout the rest of the year. I don't think the other coaches in the league are even caring about the shield at this yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be shocking at this point if North Carolina doesn't end up winning that which, shield. Which is kind of a, a good news, bad news thing. Bad news, you're out of the running for one of the two trophies in this league. Good news is that you can fully focus on just making sure you finish top four and have your team be at its best for the 25th game of the season not the 11th or 12th game of the season 
Yeah, uh, I guess if you want to look at that that way of it, I, I think the Thorns would like to be in the running for the Shield, although the beginning of their season probably has ruled them out um, and what North Carolina has been able to do. But I, I, this would be a big step. I, I mean, when you talk about turning points for the Thorns, I, this would be a very big step for them to, to come in Wednesday night and show that they can beat the best team in the league, to, to put in a good performance, to put in consistency uh, and get – get the attack going and also keep the consistency that they've had the last two games on defense uh, going in this match. I think it would be a sign that we really are seeing uh, the Thorns move in the right direction. And these last two games haven't just been um, just nice results that, that we're going <laughs> to see them backtrack uh, in the coming weeks. So yeah, it, this would be a huge, uh, but if they lose, then what do you think of them? It depends. I, I mean, it depends on the performance. I, I don't give up on the thorns if they lose to North Carolina, given how good North Carolina has been, although the thorns are at home. And I, I think that inherently makes it more disappointing if they lose, or even if they get a draw, yes, of course. Um, but this is a, this is a very good North Carolina team. And I am not expecting, even if the thorns put in a great performance for this to be an easy win um, or even an easy result. Oh, no, I, the last time they played here was a complete slog. Yeah, it's it's going to be a hard game one yeah. way or another, but this is a game that the Thorns have the opportunity to prove a point here. No, I, these two teams are the two most physical teams in the league. Mm-hmm. The last time they played here was the first or second game. I believe was the first game. Mark Parsons switched to the uh, 3-4-1-2 formation. Uh, really, I don't know if it caught North Carolina by surprise, but it's a formation that really played well against North Carolina's two striker attack. Uh, they like to they stay narrow narrow with their box in midfield, allows those Thorns wings back to get up and down the flanks. Of course, Thorns just switched to a 4-2-3-1 formation. Uh, but Mark Parsons has said that he likes to keep both tricks in the bag, so we'll see what happens. Um, I do wonder psychologically if North Carolina plays as well on Wednesday as they have against every other opponent this year. What does that do for the Thorns as far as their kind of self-image of themselves? Because right now, even with their slow start, they very much view themselves as one of the two elite teams in this league. So if North Carolina comes in, gets three points, get three points in a way that shows the Thorns that not only are you not at the level that you think you are, but you're at the same level as all these other teams that we've beaten this year, what does that do? I mean, I think what we would get is a team that comes and tells us, you know, this is just one of the challenges in the season. We have to be better. We've got we're but we're on this journey and et cetera, et cetera. But it really would seem like there's one team that rules them all at this point in this league. If that happens on Wednesday. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what North Carolina is coming in right now. That's the expectation coming in, uh, unless the Thorns can change that. Um, I, I mean, North Carolina is far and away the best team, and I don't think that's been a question so far. No. So some injury news for North Carolina. Their usual number one goalkeeper, Sabrina D'Angelo, she's out. She's been injured for a while. Denise O'Sullivan, starting midfielder, she's going to be out. Jalene Hinkle, um, the best fullback in the league to this point in the season, she might not play either. Um, North Carolina also hasn't played since last week. Wednesday when uh, they beat Orlando in Orlando four to three, but they had the weekend off. So they're going to be a little bit rested. We have a couple thorns questions. One gets right to the point from Donna. How can the thorns pull off a win on Wednesday? IE, what are the keys for victory? I'm going to twist this a little bit. Imagine we're sitting here next Tuesday. We're recording the first time we record. It actually worked. We don't have to do this again. Um, And the thorns won. What would you say is the thing that most likely happened 
that was key, the important thing in that Thorns victory. Yeah, I, I think we're going to be talking about the defense if that happened. Because if the Thorns uh, revert to one of the performances they had earlier this season defensively, if they have mistakes, any big mistakes in key moments, I think they're going to get punished. I think this North Carolina team is a good enough team that they're going to punish them, and then they're not going to let the Thorns get back in the game. Uh, so I, I think for the Thorns to have a chance to win here, they have to put in a very strong defensive performance. Emily Menges has to step up, and, and Catherine Reynolds and Megan Klingberg uh, they have to get a great outing from the back line and the whole team um, defensively as well. I think if they do that, they put themselves in a position where Tobin Heath or Christine Sinclair or Lindsay Iran can come up with a play and, and they can find a way to get one or maybe even two goals. But uh, if the defense isn't strong, if, there are, if they have issues in, in some key moments um, and, and North Carolina can get a lead here, I, I don't think that's something they're going to give up. Mm-hmm. Uh- I think that the most likely scenario from my point of view is that if the Thorns win, Lindsay Horan's probably going to have been the best player on the pitch. She'll have bossed midfield. She will have either created or got out the end of chances in the uh, attacking third. Usually when Lindsay Horan is the best player on the field, the Thorns have won the game. And I think against North Carolina, it's hard for me to imagine I mean, I don't want to put it like that because it's easy for me to imagine Christine Sinclair being spectacular, Tobin Heath being spectacular. But I think the easiest path to victory is that those two players are great and that Lindsey Horan is just the Lindsey Horan, the Grand Horan, I will call her. Nobody steal that. The Grand Horan is mine. <laughs> I, know, I know you guys have never heard anything like that before. It's a totally original idea. But I'm going to call her the Grand Horan. Uh, let's go to um, a couple of questions from David. David, a local high school soccer coach here who I get in my mentions often, and I'm glad to get in my mentions often. Um, what is the latest timing on Caitlin Ford? Um, there's been no change in her timing. They were still talking about a midsummer return. Uh, but I think the thing that I wanted to mention here is that she actually hasn't been in Portland. So the doctors here have not examined her. She just had the surgery to take out the plate and the screws from her foot that had to set for her uh, injury. So we don't really know yet, but we're kind of just dealing with the generic, hey, this is what usually happens when this player has this type of injury timelines. Um, and then uh, the other question from David, will we see uh, Sandra Yu or Gabby Siler this season? It's not looking like we will, although that could always change with injuries. Yeah. So uh, Yeah, they were supposed to come in around now um, after – uh, after their college years finished, um, but given the signings that Thorns have made, uh, some of uh, you know Hubley um, bringing players like that, and I'm just not sure if there's going to be space for them. Uh, I don't know if they're going to come out. We'll have to ask Mark if they're going to come out and train. But yeah, neither of us um, have actually asked Mark about this. And there's been a rule change in the NWSL this year where you hold a draft pick's rights for the whole year, whether you sign them or not. So teams have less of an incentive to sign their draft picks than they have in the past, where those draft picks could be claimed by other teams or assigned by other teams if they're not added to the active roster. Um, the other, que- the last question from David that I think we all we both thought was most interesting uh, based on my past experience with this question. Uh, what's Ellie Carpenter's best position and where are we likely to see her get most game time? Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, those are two different answers. Um, I, I think when you look at Ellie Carpenter, what we've seen from her and, and kind of her trajectory prior to coming to the Thorns, we, we've thought of her as kind of a, a wing back or, 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 or right back. Um, not necessarily much uh, as much in the attack, but we've thought of her as an up-and-coming defender that that's going to be a outside back of the future for for the Australian national team. Um, 
And I, I think that still is probably the position that she's most likely to make a career out of, maybe in more of a right wing back type position. That said, I, I don't know if that's the role that she's going to play here because, because as we talked about before, you know, Mitch Purse is kind of locked up that position this year. just got called up to the national team. Um, I, I think the place on the field, particularly right now before Rosso comes back, that, that, uh, Carpenter has the best chance of being able to take is more of on that winger position. And I think that's a position that she's shown well so far with the thorns. And when she has played there, I think her speed is, she's certainly capable of contributing the attack and, and that pace can add something to the field. And so I think that's the position we might see her play more of when she's getting game minutes here. But when you're looking at her future and her development, I, I do still expect her to end up more as a wing back, right back uh, type player. So long-term, I think if you had to put them in order, how good Ellie is going to be at each of these positions, I would say fullback, then wing back, then winger. I'm, I'm pausing here because we have to include forward in here at points because she has played a through the middle forward. But let's just keep it to those three. So uh, fullback, then wing back, then winger. Right now, at a barely 18 years old, in a new league against a very high level of competition she has not faced on a regular basis before, I would say her best positions are almost the reverse. Winger, wing back, then fullback. Um, I think it's prediction time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had in our notes to talk a little bit more about some of people, listeners' concerns with the shows, but hopefully we address that at the beginning of the show. And if we haven't, please get in touch with us because that is a major concern that we not only want the podcast to move forward, mm-hmm. but we, we don't want it to fall into any traps that are there, there's potential for given our unique positions. Let's, <laughs> let's call it like that. Prediction time, though. I, um, I won, for one want to thank you for your generosity in scoring because you were way generous. Um, but we have to hold ourselves to, I think, a higher standard going forward. So let's start with the Timbers. Um, I like the Timbers' attack to continue scoring goals. I do not think very much of the Galaxy defense. Um, I think particularly against Samuel Armenteros, it's a bad, bad matchup. And without Jonah Dos Santos to protect those defenders, I look for the Timbers to win 3-1 to one with Diego Valeris, a goal and an assist. Uh, I, I'm going to have a little bit of a closer game, uh, but just kind of flipping the scoreline from that opening game at, at L.A. earlier this season. I'm going to predict the Timbers win this one 2-1. to one. I, I still think uh, the Timbers are the better team here and they're at home. This is a game that they are capable and should be able to win. I'm going to predict uh, a Blanco goal and assist. And then the second game, let me, let me throw this at you and tell me if it's a hot take. Courage versus the Thorns, the most important game in 2018 for any team in the Portland Timbers organization, thus far at least. Yeah, I, I think I, I don't think it's that hot of a take. I, uh, I mean, I, we I are think terrible at hot takes. Aren't I, we? I know. I, Sorry, I think Chris. Look at Timbers Seattle. You know, that's the hundredth game. That was a big game. But the thing is, I, coming into that, I mean, Seattle Seattle had been terrible, and the Timbers were at home, and they were expected to win. And I, and as it turned out, that game was very boring as well. Um, but that even going in with the expectation, it wasn't supposed to be this hard fought Timber Timber Seattle's game that we maybe have grown used to in the past. And, and when you look at Thorns North Carolina, that that's a rivalry that's been developing over the last few years. North Carolina beats the Thorns and knocks them out of the playoffs in 2016. The Thorns beat North Carolina to win the NWSL championship last year. And both those teams have, every time they play each other, last four times, it's been 1-0, the result one way or another. So, um, yeah, this this is a big game. And it's uh, it's hard to think of another game that's been bigger this year. Hmm. 
which leads to predictions. Like you said, last four times, one nothing score. So what are you going with on Wednesday? Yeah, I am going with one nothing. I am going with North Carolina getting the one though. Whoa. So North Carolina is going to get Soccer the win. Soccer made in North Carolina. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, and just to add a little bit more to that, uh, I'm going to go with Jessica McDonald's feeling pretty good about getting the game winning goal against her old team at Promises Park. Yeah, she did retweet that Sydney LaRue tweet from earlier this year, or did she quote tweet and say like <laughs> louder for the people in the back? But uh, yeah, she's going to be representing for all the mothers, I guess. I'm not sure. Um, look, we saw last year um, Portland one nothing victory the last time these two teams played here. I think it's going to be that style of game. These are the two most physical teams in the league. I don't look for there to be a lot of goals here, even though North Carolina wasn't involved in a seven-goal game the last time they took the field. Um, I do think that the gap between the Thorns and the Courage is bigger right now than it was last year when the teams met, bigger in favor of North Carolina. So I don't think it's going to be another one nothing game. I think it's going to be a one-to-one game. Uh, and I, I wonder how, if that happens, that the Thorns will feel about that. I mean, I think that they will play well. I think they'll be strong. I think they'll rise to the occasion. But I just think North Carolina, particularly with Crystal Dunn, is better than they were last year. So I'm just changing that baseline a little bit. My prediction is uh, I think Lindsey Horan will be one of, if not the best player in the game, and I think she will have a goal. All right. Uh, I think that leaves us with just the fantasy update uh, before we let you guys go here. Um, I, me and Richard, of course, are not uh, playing fantasy, but we're going to be continuing to provide the updates and hopefully are going to find some uh, cool but um, sort of random prizes like we have in the past at the end of the year. Uh, so in third place, we have FCP Lord with uh, 1,242 points. Wait, what was that name? P Lord. P- FCP Pied Lord. Pied Lord. I don't know. Okay. Something along those lines. Okay. It's Kaplan. Um, and then in second place, we have Racing Club Day. It's cut off, so I can't see the rest of that. But That's it's a long uh, name. <laughs> 1,257 points. And then in first place, uh, we have Beer City FC with 1,303 points. Uh, Chris Reifer, if uh, uh, anyone still cares, <laughs> is in 41st place with 985 points. Um, well, this has been Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, you can find us every week um, on Oregon Live, uh, Timbers.com, and also still Stumptown Footy. We're going to continuing to publish the podcast there, so we look forward to reading everyone's comments and seeing the input there as well. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Um, me and Richard will be back next week to discuss the uh, Thorns versus North Carolina game and to talk about Timbers versus LA Galaxy. Until then, take care.